From John Jay College of Criminal Justice in Manhattan, this is They Are Just Deportees, the official podcast of the social anatomy of a deportation regime. On today's show, Professor David Brotherton discusses the findings of his groundbreaking study of the experiences of Dominican deportees forcibly removed from the United States of America. They are still extremely excluded and uh, it's a kind of, it's a crisis that's never been resolved. And to what extent the deportation regime is an extension of the logic of US statecraft. City today, immigrants make up 45% of the workforce and have deep community and familial ties across the five boroughs. Their children attend New York City schools, they pay state and federal taxes, they have been and remain dyed into the very social fabric of this city. Yet those migrants without documentation face the looming threat of potential raids by the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, the torturous bureaucracy of the immigration court system the terror of detention and the depression of forced removal, often from their families and the only communities they have ever known. This is what we call the deportation regime. By deportation regime, I'm referring to the institutional systems and practices created through the emergence of the security state and the convergence of the criminal justice and immigration enforcement systems, as well as the apparatuses used to discipline the minds, and the bodies of undocumented and documented labour here in the United States. The forced removal of the migrant is but one event within a larger chain of events, a regime sustained by broader sociological structures and ideological forces which affect all of those who reside here in the US, citizen or non-citizen. The United States is a country of immigrants, but it's also a country of deportees. It is in New York that immigrant communities have seen the development and deployment of some of the most oppressive immigration enforcement policies and mechanisms as they have collided with other methods of social control. Here to discuss this is Professor David Brotherton. Professor Brotherton is a professor of sociology here at John Jay College and at the Graduate Center CUNY. He received the Praxis Award for Contribution to Social Justice from the Critical Criminology section of the American Society of Criminology and was named Critical Criminologist of the Year in 2011. He's written a number of peer-reviewed articles and books on the issue of deportation and the methods and techniques of conducting research and analysis on this topic, including a long-form ethnography of the experiences of deportees to the Dominican Republic called Banished to the Homeland, Dominican Deportees and Their Stories of Exiles. Thank you. I just want to start with your book that I just mentioned, Banished to the Homeland, in it, you and Luis Barrios conduct a multi-sided research in the U.S. and the Dominican Republic to capture what happens to Dominican migrants after they are deported from the U.S. and how they are received in their homeland. Can you explain a little bit more about how you came about writing this book and what your main conclusions were? Sure. Well, <clears throat> back in the early 2000s, around 2001, 2002, uh, Luis and I had finished um, a long five or six year study with uh, one of New York City's largest street gangs called the Latin Kings and Queens. Uh, and within that group, it was primarily Puerto Rican, but there was a large section of Dominican, Dominican Americans, uh, 
they basically based up in the Washington Heights area of, uh, of New York City. After we finished the book, we returned to, well, we went to the Dominican Republic and uh, gave a talk on uh, Dominican youth uh, subcultures in New York City, um, thinking that that's, you know, people wanted to hear about what uh, was going on with their younger brothers and sisters uh, in, the, in the great United States of America. And at the end of this talk, um, we asked, you know, anybody got any questions and comments? And a bunch of people put their hands up and... Um, the words that came out of their mouth was sort of somewhat surprising to me. Uh, the first question was, why are you sending them all back here? And I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, you're sending all these gang members back to the Dominican Republic. I mean, and they're bringing all these crimes and they're bringing all these kind of new new forms of deviance here. Well, you know, why are you guys doing this? Why is this government doing this? And I really didn't know what uh, what this person was referring to. I um, talked to uh, Luis, who was a priest, at a large congregation up there, and he said, yeah, it's true, Dave. We're sending back hundreds of Dominicans a year under the new immigration laws of 19, uh, 1996, basically the Immigration Removal Act. Moved uh, at a period in time when, one, the, the, the immigration laws changed and became probably the most punitive immigration laws of the 20th century, certainly since the Chinese Exclusion Act of the 1880s. And the second thing is uh, they encountered the other extremely punitive crusade, which was the war on drugs. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. A package to toughen sentences, beef up law enforcement, and build new prison space for 24,000 inmates. You and I both know the federal government can't do it alone. The states need to match tougher federal laws with tougher laws of their own. Stiffer bail, probation, parole, and sentence. But we know we must do more because the drug cartels will do more. After all, there's a lot of money in this. So we're already deploying new technologies, increasing the customs budget, doubling the number of border patrol agents along the southwest border. Today, I'm committing another $73 million to the Defense Department's $800 million counter-narcotics budget to help support the interdiction efforts in Latin America and the Caribbean. And the combination of these, the war on drugs and the new immigration laws, basically led to this mass kind of exclusion, this mass uh, permanent deportation of a whole uh, number of uh, people, mainly of people of color, uh, and predominantly from the lower social classes. So that was number. That was the first thing. So it wasn't that something that they did that was so terrible. These are not major drug dealers. They're not rapists, uh, or you know, committed multiple homicides, which is what uh, the president uh, of the in the current White House is often saying about Mexicans and so on and so forth. Many of them were deported through sort of minor uh, incursions into the drug trade, or you know, even infractions such as. Uh, you know, traffic violations and things like that. So these are fairly minor it kind of transgressive deviants, if you like. The second thing is what happens to them on their return. And this was very important. What happened basically is that the, uh, the, the Dominican society uh, had their own moral panic toward these people who were being removed from the United States. Just as there was a moral panic in the United States that uh, helped to kind of... Uh, 
rationalise the removal of these people as, as being incorrigible uh, immigrants and so on and so forth, there was an equal moral panic in the Dominican Republic of these people were coming back. So they were coming back, you know, on the plane load, maybe two or three plane loads a week from uh, New York City or Miami, and there'd be pictures all over the uh, front pages of uh, various newspapers, and it would say, you know, 120 deportees returned this week, and among them are, you know, basically rapists and drug dealers and so on and so forth. Even though maybe out of 120, there might be only two or three with serious uh, crimes in their background. So there was a panic over this return of these people, and they were being seen as basically polluting uh, the Dominican society uh, with these kind of bringing back these these transgressive kind of cultures and subcultures uh, from the uh, from the New, New York City. Secondly, they were being seen as failed immigrants or failed emigrants, and they were kind of seen as an embarrassment to the Dominican society. Uh, so they were both people to be feared and to, they were people to be uh, embarrassed by. And so what you got, you know, very quickly is that people who were seen as deportees were highly stigmatised. They were persona non grata. They were almost like a, an untouchable caste in Dominican society. And back then in the early 2000s, to get a job in any kind of mainstream industry, you had to have a, um, a document, a paper, uh, that was basically uh, showed that you were of good character, that you'd not been in, in prison in the Dominican Republic, but it also had stamped on it, right across it, if you'd been deported, deportado, deported. And you would have to show this to uh, any mainstream employer, an employer, for example, in a bank, or employer in an office, or employer in the travel industry, which is very big in the United in the. Dominican society, Dominican Republic. So, of course, none of these people could get any mainstream jobs. And there was absolutely no provisions to reinsert uh, compatriots uh, from the United States into Dominican society. They were permanently excluded. Well, what this led to, of course, as you can imagine, you are now taken out of a society where you've been socialised, where you've probably got your mother and father, where you may have children, you may even have your spouses, that in itself is highly traumatising, being removed from that society where you've been uh, growing up. You may have also come out of prison. You may, have been, you may have done two or three years in the prison or whatever. That itself was also very traumatising. And now you're brought into this society where you're again rejected right, for the third or fourth time, which is also traumatising. So it leads to an incredible kind of health crisis amongst deportees. Uh, they get extremely depressed and you start to see a kind of mushrooming subpopulation of, uh, of deportees uh, getting into heroin, which had never been uh, really a drug of choice uh, in, the, in the Dominican Republic. So there's over, so this was, an, you know, this, and this population is growing by two to 3,000 uh, every year. Currently, it's around 70,000 deportees in the Dominican Republic. They are still, uh, this is 15, 16 years after our first uh, entrance into the field and studying this, they are still incredibly stigmatised. They are still extremely excluded. The United States, which is obviously responsible for this, washed their hands of the population, washed their hands of the consequences of this crisis back in 2002, back in 2003, and are doing exactly the same today. They washed their hands, it's nothing to do with us, 
these they when I interviewed somebody from the U.S. Embassy back in that at that period of time, they said to me, uh, Professor Brotherton, uh, these are guests who overstayed their welcome. Um, one thing that really strikes me from reading your book and talking to you about this this subject, this topic, is the absolute dearth in literature on these issues um, prior. And, you know, this is a country, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, as much of a country of immigrants as it is a country also of, of, of deportees, you know, a country of forced removal internally, but also out of the country's borders of they've, as if they, they have expanded. Um, I'm wondering why, and you know, and this, this work, it combines criminology and, and immigration studies, but I'm wondering why there's been such a, uh, um, a lack of literature in these two fields on the subject of deportation up until very recently. Well, it, the study of immigration has um, largely been dominated in American or US academia by sociology um, and its emphasis has always been in a kind of unidirectional movement of people from Europe or in more recent times from uh, the developing world into the United States. So the emphasis for many, many years has been on uh, assimilation and integration into the United States and uh, different people have written about how uh, how seamless it was for many, and others have said, well, it's been difficult, especially uh, when you come in, uh, in during periods of high unemployment um, or when, um, you know, we have punitive laws that are, have criminalised immigrant communities and especially communities of colour. But, it, but they, they never sort of looked at it the other way around, that, that people were being detained, being held in basically concentration camps, which is we call detention camps, but they're really concentration camps, because they're concentrating people of a certain group, right? Yeah. So it, that's why we call them concentration camps. All the way, by the way, the concentration camps weren't started by the Nazis; they were started by the British. So it, there was it was basically this kind of U.S. Uh, uh, academic blind spot, if you like, uh, of uh, there's also this other. A movement of, of by the state enforcing laws, removing people out of the United States society back to these other countries, and it was it wasn't it didn't fit the paradigm. It didn't fit these the paradigm in inside uh, sociology, which is heavily patrolled uh, by you know academics and who get good grants and have decent positions. And something like looking at this other expulsion of people kind of didn't fit into you know their their general worldview of what was going on with the immigrant population uh, sometimes you know my friend uh, uh, jock young uh, rest in peace used to call it the uh, sociology of the happy immigrant and of course you know immigration you are coming to the country mostly you know to have a better life to maybe uh, enjoy or try to accede into the american dream or you're just simply being forced out uh, under some kind of you know, military kind of rule somewhere else and fleeing and whatever. So most immigrants, you know, want to do well, want to do... And that's why immigrants have the lowest uh, rate of crime of almost any population in the United States, by the way. But for a lot of immigrants, they're just caught in the wrong place the wrong uh, at the wrong time, in the wrong period. And this is what was going on with the deportation uh, kind of crisis and the deportation population. But nobody was looking at it. The other thing is that uh, oftentimes sociologists never read any criminology. Uh, criminologists tend to read sociology, but sociology 
often doesn't read much criminology. So there wasn't really kind of an understanding of crime and the construction of crime or the role of the state in bringing laws onto the books that criminalize people. That wasn't, you know, the kind of the emphasis uh, within the discipline. And, uh, and so when we started to look at this and, and started to see that this was decades in the making, when you, when you peeled away the onion, you know, you saw the your 1996 uh, deportation laws, which were absolutely, um, you know, were incredibly harsh. But we'd also seen kind of a gradual build up to this, especially during the wars on drugs that most sociologists hadn't taken, uh, hadn't really sort of uh, developed an eye for or begin to read uh, write proposals and grant proposals. So this was like a major intervention uh, in this in our study in the Dominican Republic, and we wanted to do do the same thing across uh, the Caribbean, but we we couldn't find any funding. In fact, we couldn't even get any funding for any of the work we did in the Dominican Republic. You are listening to They Are Just Deportees, the official podcast of the Social Anatomy of Deportation Regime. You can find more information about us and our events at www.sadrjohnjay.com. You know, the Trump administration is pursuing undocumented migrants and pledges to deport all of those in the country without papers. And, you know, this has led to an increased focus on the nature of deportations in mainstream media, but also in the centre and the, the left uh, more broadly, including, you know, elected officials. You know, this is a subject that's starting to have a little bit more cachet. Uh, I want to step back from this often very contemporary um, framing and look at deportation more as a, a technology of statecraft, you know, and, and, and a way in which it's used to manage populations, um, a technology to manage populations. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how this technology of population management has developed in this country and, you know, how it's been specifically shaped by maybe historical episodes. Well, if you look at deportation laws, the language, uh, the legal language, draws on all the different um, anti-immigrant uh, and um of laws of the past, going from the Chinese Exclusion Act to the Japanese uh, internment, Japanese and American internment camps in the 1930s, signed into law, by, by the way, by the most liberal of presidents, FDR. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous. Most were loyal. But no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them Citizens and aliens alike would have to move. So the operation wet back in the 1950s. With Every 30 seconds, a so-called Mexican wetback enters this country illegally. The number is increasing. Some days, as many as 5,000 are caught and sent back in a single day. So the laws themselves, and also conjoined with uh, the, the different exclusions uh, of people domestically, the... Um, the, uh, for example, the Native American or the Indian Removal Acts, um, you know, over the 1800s, the um, Runaway Slave Acts yeah. uh, during the same period, uh, just uh, post, you know, around the time of abolition. Um, all these, the language which is used, the, the vocabulary, the rationales are all in current 
deportation, immigration deportation laws. So again, you can't simply have a, a kind of contemporary perspective on, on how did we get here. You had to see that, you know, as um, as our colleague uh, Dan Kahnstrom says, you know, we're yes, we're an immigration nation, uh, but we're also a deportation nation. Uh, we're also a colonial settler nation. We are all these kinds of nations, if you like. Uh, with you know, so we're in a very contradictory society here. Which, yeah, sure, it does have. It brings people in, and and it can give people asylum from uh, authoritarian regimes. Uh, but my God, we exclude a lot of people, uh, and we commit extraordinary levels of structural violence, and historically have created uh, some extraordinary acts of structural violence against the poorest and the most vulnerable po population. And this, deep, these deportation laws are very reflective of that kind of other side, that Jekyll and Hyde side uh, of, uh, of your American society. Now, in addition, what's terribly important is how you get the capital, uh, because this costs billions of dollars uh, to, to, to institutionalize, uh, to set up the bricks and mortar, the detention camps. You know, don't build themselves. They're not, they don't come out of Lego brick. Thank the leadership in Congress for moving the emergency supplemental spending package forward to the president. Uh, we're hoping he'll sign it uh, early next week. Uh, this funding will provide an additional $1.5 billion for the Department of Homeland Security for additional temporary facilities, transportation, medical care, consumables, and surge operations related to the care, custody, and processing of migrants apprehended at the border and crossing at ports of entry. It will help us improve our IT systems that support immigration processing as well. We intend to move very quickly to apply this funding to support our teams managing the crisis on the border and enhancing conditions for families and children in CBP custody, while expediting the transfer of unaccompanied children to well-equipped facilities at Health and Human Services. The funding is also critical for border security. As Acting Director Morgan, CBP leadership and I have advocated repeatedly before Congress and in the media, this humanitarian crisis has taken agents and officers away from their border security and traditional law enforcement missions. We need to get them back on the line, securing the border against smugglers, traffickers, and security threats, arresting fugitives in the interior, and safeguarding the United States. These, you know, this is billions of taxpayers' dollars, which are being used to house something like, by law, 42,000 uh, people per day have to be basically incarcerated who are immigrants by congressional edict. Right? How does a country do this? When it prides itself on being democratic, when it prides itself on being supposedly an open society, as being a mosaic of immigrants, how does it do this? How does it get the uh, legitimacy? How does it get the uh, assent of taxpayers to spend billions of dollars of, in of incarceration and putting people into concentration camps? I mean, it's quite a feat. And, uh, you know, if this was done in Europe, you know, basically people would say immediately, well, this is, this is Nazism all again. You know, this is... Again, you know, this extraordinary level of, of deportation of the Jews and the commies and the, and the Romanies, you know, we're doing, you know, but the United States has this strange, this is why, um, uh, you know, sometimes referred to as United States of amnesia, because it is, it has very little, most people, very little historical consciousness about, you know, contemporary issues and contemporary problems. But you, you know, you have this, 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 this extraordinary infrastructure, highly punitive, uh, cross agency infrastructure that was brought you know brought, put in place especially once the department of homeland security uh, was set up under the under the bush administration once these institutions are set up once you know with their own budgets 
then it's very difficult. They're like steamrollers. It's very difficult to shut them down, to constrain them, because as the crisis unfolds and as the media, you know, again, plays its part, it doesn't expose what's going on, uh, and, it's, you know, people are being consistently othered and so on and so forth, you know, the, the, uh, the politicians are demanding, you know, and, and because they're the politicians are getting elected in, uh, on tough-on-crime uh, uh, bills, right, and tough-on-crime policies, and tough on the immigrant and so on and so forth. So they build these rationales into increasing the budgets. The budgets increase, obviously, as you bring in hundreds of tens of thousands of new employees, they unionize and they set up their own lobbying uh, constituencies and they place all kinds of pressures on politicians to demand more money uh, for them in their particular constituencies. So there's all of these kind of forces come together, the budgetary forces, the complicity of the politicians, the constant moral panics that we have, they never stop. They, they are seamless moral panics. This is what uh, Trump was elected. He's basically missed the moral panic, really. Um, and the detention camps and the money for the detention camps and the hardware for the detention camps and the surveillance systems and technologies and the databases, they all become part of this explosion uh, of new types of social control especially of the immigrant communities. So it, in a way, the question could be flipped and it would be, well, it, of course it makes sense that a state would create this massive system of social control and money-making in order to essentially wreak profits for those at the top and split the working class, right? Split those with citizenship and those within the sort of bucket of denizenry apart get them to sort of fear each other, combat and be against each other. And um, it's, just a, it's just a very, very refined form of social engineering, which brings me on to my, my next question. When we, 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 you know, we're recording this podcast from New York City. It's a city of immigration. Um, you know, every single mayor that comes into the mayor's office lords the, the city's immigrant past, but also fails to mention that because this is a city of immigration, it also makes it the expert laboratory for the um, implementation of um, social control techniques um, and methods of um, um, criminal justice enforcement. Um, to what extent can we you, can we look at to New York as, as as a model for this social control mechanisms, particularly with immigration, and how does it differ from the rest of the country and where there are overlaps? Well, New York is very interesting in this regard that um, we are, you know, if you like, in terms of a welfare state, we probably have the most developed welfare state of any any city in the country. This is one of the great bastions of public health historically. This is, we have the largest uh, public university system, which is where this podcast is coming from, from the City University of New York. You know, by far uh, in the country, we have the largest uh, public uh, high school and, and schooling system of 1.2 million students. We have the largest public housing uh, population. So we have this, you know, very this extraordinary history, really, uh, of gains, really. One uh, from the, uh, you know, from the ruling class, from the ruling elites of this of this city, to provide services and and some kind of um, uh, social security net, you know, for the poorest of 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 uh, of our denizens, of, of, of the city goers. At the same time, 
It's also had a very developed, militarized uh, policing structure uh, of the of the working classes, and that's the other side of the coin. Is the social control, you know, always comes in this kind of dialectic on the one hand of of provision, social security provision, on the other hand of uh, of much more militarized and uh, coercive social control, and so. What's what evolved here, especially after 1970s, especially after uh, New York went bankrupt in the late 1970s, 1978, when uh, President Ford infamously told New York, uh, you know, to basically get stuffed and that it wasn't going to get bailed out by the federal system, uh, that we've we've been practicing and experimenting with a whole range of criminal justice policies uh, really based on criminalizing uh, the other. Um, so if you think of all the most uh, globally, really, uh, sort of famous criminal justice policies, they all, most of them come from experimenting on New York City's population. Uh, broken windows, uh, that came out of uh, the, uh, Rutgers Criminal Justice uh, Department, um, that was practiced uh, widely. Uh, on the New York City population, uh, the idea that if you know uh, by Rudy Giuliani, if somebody urinates in public, the person is telling you, "I got a big problem." <laughs> this is what broken windows theory is all about. about I mean, if some guy is urinating in public, he's we got a we got a problem. Now you can do one of two things: you can ignore the problem and say, "Gee, I'm such a big um, fuzzy-headed liberal." that I'm going to walk away from it and we're going to make believe there's no problem. That's New York City in the 1980s. That's New York City with 2,000 murders. That's New York City with 500,000 crimes. You have to pay attention to people urinating on the streets and you have to get people to stop urinating on the streets. That's that's moving towards civilization. Giuliani, his infamous policy was zero tolerance, which is called manodura in in Central America. Stop and frisk, uh, the other one uh, that was um, uh, brought in under Bratton and uh, you know, eventually sort of wound down by the present mayor, Mayor de Blasio. Let de Blasio know how we should be treated. We outnumber de Blasio. I say to William Bratton, there was over 30 innocent unarmed people that were killed from 94 to 1996 in New York City, and Bill Bratton failed to hold any one of those officers accountable. The stop and frisk started in New York. We saw it in Philadelphia. We saw it in California. We saw it in San Francisco. And today we say it's over. Mr. Mayor, you're... But all of these, all of these policies, these are really harsh uh, policies where you conceive that a certain population's are pathological, are incorrigible, and that the only way the only way you can control them is basically taking them out of commission, and uh, and incarcerating them, and and so on and so forth. So we've had this other this dual side. Now, the laboratory for uh, social control uh, seen through a criminal justice lens. We are this laboratory uh, from the federal kind of uh, uh, um, federal policy on the control of immigrants, but we also uh, are a laboratory of resistance. Uh, and it's important to understand that kind of contradiction. Yeah, you, 
you mentioned CUNY. We're recording this podcast from John Jay College, one of the 27 colleges of the City University of New York. Right now, there are 30,000 Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA recipients, in New York City. These are young people who have arrived in the U.S. as undocumented migrants and have been given deferred action on being deported and the right to apply for college and work. Many of these young people, you and I, have both taught in John Jay or at Queen's College. And I'm just wondering, uh, a question maybe for some some teachers, professors and others out there, what, what role we have as educators and critical um, pedagogists, what role or what responsibility we have to these students. Many of them are, are on DACA, but many more even have parents who are undocumented or even family members who have been um, um, deported. What role do we have um, as educators towards them and how should we engage in this very, very product, progressive you know, social project, which is CUNY? How, how do we engage in that in the spirit of solidarity? Well, I think, you know, we have to be there to, obviously, to explain to uh, our students, DACA students and non-DACA students, again, you know, how have we come, has this situation come to come to be, has it come about? Um, and, you know, knowledge is power too, right? That's what we're about. Um, and once, you know, developing that consciousness to, you know, encourage them to organise, uh, to organise across, you know, in New York City, uh, as part of the resistance. We don't know what's going to happen, you know, with the DACA laws. We know it's now going to come before the Supreme Court. We know that it's an inbuilt, very conservative uh, court. As we, just, uh, we just saw uh, the, the recent Roberts uh, um, decision uh, on gerrymandering. Um, it's a, it's, it could well be that they strike down the laws. Uh, it could well be that uh, the 30,000 we have in the city or the 800,000 you know, could suddenly become undocumented uh, in the sense of, or uh, deportable, uh, and, and the roundup could begin. Um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we know that the, uh, the, the president of this country uh, thrives on chaos. Uh, he thrives on uh, constant sort of instability, uh, because in, you know, in instability, you drive up rates of anxiety uh, and when people become extremely anxious, they, they become emotional and they grab at straws. And it's easy in that period to scapegoat people, to say they're the, they're the problem. I mean, there was a good intervention, I thought, from our mayor, Mel de Blasio, in the last debate when he said, and to the supporters of President Trump, uh, listen, it's not the immigrant that's the problem. They're not the ones that have... Uh, displaced you from your work and have reduced yep. your salaries and your wages. It's the corporations. You know, this is what it is about. It's it's about transference uh, of who is causing, you know, the massive kind of levels of uh, impoverishment and the economic divide, which is growing at breakneck speed between the haves and the have-nots, and blaming it on the immigrant. I mean, it's a tried and tested tactic uh, that the ruling class has, has always done, you know, since its uh, inception. Now, so you know what our role is is to is to show these links, not simply you know, to the other broader racial and class questions, uh, the big you know the big questions, if you like, of how do we fight back, what kind of society do we live in, and um, you know what kind of society do we want? I think we can leave it there. Thank you so much, Professor Braverton, for joining me on They Are Just Deportees. That was our show. They're Just Deportees is the official podcast of the social anatomy of a deportation regime. 
a research working group based out of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. You can find out more at www.sadrjohnjay.com. My name is Nick Rodrigo. This episode was produced and edited by myself and Ange Firestone. Our music was produced by Star One. Financial assistance for this podcast series was provided by the Office for the Advancement of Research, John Jay College. We'll see you next time.